Hello and welcome once again to Pop Enlightenments in association with the Centre for Enlightenment Studies at King's College London and with the British Society for 18th Century Studies. I'm Dr Emrys Jones, Senior Lecturer in 18th Century Literature and Culture at KCL and I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast Dr Adam James Smith, Lecturer in 18th Century Literature at York St John University. As usual, we'll be talking today about the various interpretations and representations of 18th century culture in current popular culture, and most specifically, we're marking the 200th anniversary of the Peterloo Massacre, right at the tail end of our long 18th century. On the 16th of August 1819, a peaceful pro-reform demonstration at St Peter's Field, Manchester, was violently broken up by the local yeomanry and by a cavalry regiment, resulting in 15 deaths and leaving at least 600 people injured. The event inspired Percy Bysshe Shelley to write some of his most excoriating political poetry, the sonnet England in 1819 and the longer work The Mask of Anarchy, both of which were only published after his death. Peterloo, its name a damning distortion of Britain's victory at Waterloo four years before, has since come to be seen as a key moment, perhaps even a founding myth of left-wing discourse in Britain, though the extent to which it actually brought about change or even contributed to the tenor of radical rhetoric from later in the 19th century is contested to this day. Adam, this episode is inevitably going to be concerned with the political uses of the 18th century in contemporary Britain, and I know this is a subject that interests you greatly. You spoke at the British Society for 18th Century Studies annual conference this year about the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn and the politics of Poldark. Maybe you could explain to our listeners what connection is there? It's just a very... I'm fascinated by sort of cultural dialogue around Poldark. Poldark, which in the first episode of Pop Enlightenment, I said I was ambivalent about. Mm. I'd like to retract that and say I think it's fine. It's good. Okay. Um, but what is as interesting as the show itself, I think, if not more interesting, is the way people talk about it. And very early on, I think fairly unexpectedly in its second season, people started to talk about the parallel, the per- perceived parallels between mm. Ross Poldark, mm. dashing man who's just returned from the American Revolution to try and open a mine where he came from, uh, in, in Cornwall with Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, it's not um, a connection that would immediately spring to my mind, but I do remember from your paper at BSEX conference in January that you had some rather striking photos you had found online sort of superimposing yeah. Corbyn's face onto a shirtless Paul Dark's body in ways that probably I will never be able to unsee. Yeah, yeah. It's worth... If you want to see that, it's worth giggling it, because there's a lot of memes where they've done exactly that. They've put Jeremy Corbyn's face on the famous picture of, of Aidan Turner with his shirt off and, and things like that. And it's partly because of the way that Ross speaks and the rhetoric that he uses. I mean, the spoiler, Poldark spoilers, it, he he begins, when he when he gets back to Cornwall, he's sort of lost his mind. He's lost his, lost his mind, not lost his mind. He's lost his mind. <laughs> He's lost his family fortune and he wants, and he, they don't know if they're going to find any tin down the mine or not. Um, and he has to like take out a lot of loans and persuade people to invest in him and believe in him. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about how he's doing this for the good of the community and for the working man. And they, they have to do this because the richer are the rich and then they're, they're carving everything off for themselves and, and the, poor, the poor need to fight back. However, I always found that a bit difficult because he's also like, he is also blue-blooded and he yes. is also trying to retrieve his uh, his wealth but he's able to mm. utilize this popularist 1790s rhetoric to mm. win the support of the community um, and as he's doing that people say oh he sounds like Jeremy Corbyn doesn't he and mm-hmm. um, but the, maybe they, they don't want to push the, the parallels 
too far there. Not in... at that point, no. <laughs> um, I mean, he's very Eurosceptical. Mm-hmm. Um, Ark. Oh, okay. Well, um, that he has also, in common, presumably, yeah, with Jeremy Corbyn. Which is another element. And then there's a lot of talk around 2016, people, that there's an episode where Poldark has to go into a French prison of war camp to rescue his friend, um, and he punches his way out again, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of people tweeting, like, that's now, that's what I call a hard Brexit. We need, we need okay. Russ Poldark in charge. Um, I've got then, to say, it sounds quite a, a muddled political allegory as far as it goes. Um, but then it got really interesting in the fourth season where Poldark actually becomes a politician and mm. ends up going down to London and meeting all of these famous yes. characters. Yeah. And that's when he starts to say, uh, well, I believe in the good of the many, not the few. Mm. Um, and that was used in a lot of the publicity. It was used in the trailer. Um, and the reaction on, on social media was fascinating. I've got some of the tweets here mm-hmm. where, so so for instance... Oh, ho, Lois said on the 7th of August, 2018, fave Poldark moment is when Ross quotes Jeremy Corbyn and says, mm-hmm. for, the many not a f- for the many, not the few, obviously a fan. <laughs> um, someone else said, very disappointed to find Jeremy Corbyn's rhetoric rotting hashtag Poldark. Oh Why did they make Poldark say not for the, uh, not for the many, but the few? Uh, mm. Sorry, not for the few, but for the many. And I just think that's interesting, isn't it? Because that is an 18th century discourse that Jeremy Corbyn is utilising, yes. which is then some kind of like weird feedback loop occurring yeah. where I mean indeed it comes from at least one of the places it comes from is Shelley from the the mask of anarchy mm. in response to Peterloo yeah. you have the the refrain of that poem um ye are many they are few mm. I'm not saying that's the only place that Corbyn gets it from but he he suddenly knows that poem he, he recited it at Glastonbury mm. in 2017. Yeah. So I think you're right that what people are kind of accusing of being the BBC latching onto Corbyn's yeah. rhetoric might just as easily be seen the yeah, other way I mean, around. There's tweets about BBC bias as well, in that it's mm-hmm. like secretly propaganda for Jeremy Corbyn. But the thing that fascinates me is that you've got a really you've got a cultural text there, which is very popular, which is showing this lineage that what's happening in our own political moment has this history, mm. this sort of cyclical history that goes back to at least the 18th century mm. and it couldn't be more explicit and yet yeah. people are resistant to the idea that what's happening now has happened before. Mm. I must say from my perspective I I find it appealing and, and I'm grateful at least for the 18th century and 18th century culture and history being used as a more progressive point of reference actually yeah. compared to what generally tends to happen in current political discourse. I'm thinking of someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg being referred to as the honourable men before the 18th century, in which case, kind of the 18th century is just shorthand for this time long ago, backwards looking, authoritarian, etc, etc. And it's it's purely seen as an era of right wing associations. Mm. So quite healthy, actually, I think, to to be demonstrating that there are, there is left wing Mm heritage going back regardless of whether it's in a kind of a straight line or not from Peterloo to the present day yeah. there are still echoes yeah clearly. I mean with the reception of Poldock it goes the other way as well I, mean, I found mm. some some responses here so for instance there's someone that says having seen the second season of Poldock um, I wish more people had seen it around the Brexit vote so they realise it wasn't such a bad idea here we've got a handsome protagonist who wants to be independent at all costs risking poverty and debt a true hero with a romantic vision He's, he can stand for both sides. Mm-hmm. So. And in many ways, a lot of 18th century history can yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, there have been times where the founding fathers of the United States of America have been cited as mm. kind of Brexit heroes, haven't they? I, yeah. I certainly wouldn't see them in that way <laughs> myself. But, um, but yeah, healthy to see the ways that 18th century history can be 
be played basically yeah. by by any and all sides in in current political debate. Yeah. Um, okay, so our, our first main pop cultural artifact in this episode, besides Poldark, is the very recent and heavily publicised film dramatisation of the events of 1819, Mike Lee's film Peter Lou, which was released in cinemas last year. It's a long film, two and a half hours, I think more than two and a half hours actually, following a whole range of characters from different classes and economic circumstances in the build-up to the fateful events of August 16th. We see the poverty of the workers that drives calls for reform. We see the gathering momentum of the protest movement and the invitation of radical speaker Henry Hunt, played by Rory Kinnear. We see the sometimes anxious, sometimes downright fanatical response of the ruling classes. And finally, in the last 45 minutes of the film, we see the terrible events at St. Peter's Field itself. The film is an unapologetic political intervention in itself. Mike Lee clearly seeing this historical moment as pivotal to how we understand Britain today, and I think seeing himself as contributing to uh, Corbynism mm. to, to a great extent. Uh, and indeed, at the time of the film's release, Mike Lee publicly called for Peterloo to be better covered within school history syllabuses. So I thought I'd start by asking you, actually, Adam, did you learn about Peterloo at school? We didn't at all. We did. We spent a long time talking about the Civil War, so I suppose that was our anti-establishment Moment. But no, Peter, I didn't really know what Peterloo was until, well, independently of school, so I was about 15 or 16, when I went to Manchester. So, quite possibly Mike Lee has a point there. I mean, I've, yeah. I've got to say, when I first heard him say that, I was a bit surprised because I was taught it at school in what felt like quite an extensive way. Mm. Um, and I was also taught it by a very conservative history teacher, actually, um, which, I don't know, I have ever since been quite in favour of the value of being taught by people who don't necessarily agree with you politically because I, I felt I came out of that with quite a, a strident view having been forced to defend my view of what I was being taught um, by that particular teacher and and to that extent was uh, was grateful to him regardless of differences. Anyway enough about my, my school <laughs> experiences. What did you think of Mike Lee's film itself, Adam? Is it successful as a historical recreation or as a political intervention, perhaps as both? I felt baffled by this film because I felt like it was trying to be both. Mm. Um, on the one hand, extraordinary historical reaction, extraordinary attention to detail in terms of sets. I mean, a scene that I absolutely loved, it takes place in a print house Mm. Um, and there's two characters talking in the background. In the foreground, you've got a character who's actually laying the type to set for the newspaper to be printed, which is going to mm. uh, promote the campaign. And for me, I mean, I never thought I'd see that on the big screen. Yes. Um, in such tremendous detail. So, I mean, that that's all extraordinary. But there, and then there are also these moments where I felt they're a little bit clunky, where the film knows that it's going to be taught in schools. Mm. And you have characters saying things like, oh, this is all because of poor laws. And so it's yeah. like, what bit poor laws, mum? And she's like, I'll tell you what it is, lad, and then mm. explain what the poor laws are. And another extraordinary moment that um, my friend reminded me of yesterday, uh, when all characters are like, they're going to suspend it here, but it's corpus acts. Mm. And then they so we talk yeah. about what appears yeah. corpus is, yes. Um, and that excruciating moment in the mm. last scene, when they're stood in St. Peter's Square. And, and the, the journalists yeah. are deciding what to call it. That's right. Yeah. Uh, How does it go? Not then? a great... Uh, Waterloo, Battle of Petersfield, 
Lou Peter. <laughs> um, no, Peter Lou. Yeah. We'll go for that. Uh, so you've got those moments where it, it's do, it knows that it, oh, it seems to perceive that it has this public duty to historical records and yeah. make people aware of the details of what happened. And then at the same time, it's almost laughably cartoonish in places. Mm. Um, and in, you've, got, you've got the Mike Lee style imported into an 18th century context, but with all of the potential pitfalls and problems of that. I mean, the, the working class characters are may as well have been drawn by Hogarth. Mm. And then the, but likewise, the exactly. upper class character, I mean, the Prince Regent here could have stepped out of Blackadder. Uh, I mean, yeah. We were talking about it in the podcast a few weeks ago. I, I agree with you about the contrived dialogue and I think it it does a disservice to to the people who are actually there at Peterloo the actual victims of it actually not just the fact that they're not speaking as they would have spoken but that it then gives the impression for me that the protests the, the motivation for it comes from somewhere slightly different if they are all completely sophisticated in talking about habeas corpus and yeah. talking about the corn laws etc etc I don't doubt that a great many of them did understand the ins and outs, but then just as much, these are starving people who are looking for any mm. means possible to bring about change yeah. and, and just to feed themselves and their families. And, and although the, the film does address that, it then loses sight of it slightly if it is becoming just kind of a classroom setting, like you mm. say, where everyone is at leisure to, to talk about the the fine points of how Parliament works or what the Corn Laws are doing, etc, etc. Yes, that's part of it, but I, I just don't instinctively think that can have been the whole story of why they're there and what they see themselves as doing in, mm. in terms of the protests. Um, so disappointing, I guess, in that sense, in the sense of some caricature along the way. Are there things that are that are more successful here. I mean, I thought the last 45 minutes in actually depicting the events yeah. of the day itself are quite incredible. In almost real time, isn't it? It's like you've, you've had two hours, we've had two hours of preparation and here's the, here's the main event in excruciating yeah. detail. And I mean, the, there's a character, one of the soldiers is trying to stop the other soldiers and there's one, mm. one old man. Just one trying. isolated soldier yeah. saying, this is not decent, this isn't <laughs> gentlemanly behavior to yeah. be slaughtering kind of men, women and children in the <laughs> yeah. streets. It's, Which uh, is the first moment of balance, yeah. is it, um, I think, or, or, or attempt at signalling that not all of these yeah. people are on the same page. But I've got to say, by that point in the film, I'm not sure I wanted balance. No. I think actually it did its job quite well in making me angry. I, yeah. was, I was furious in yeah. that last 45 minutes at those soldiers yeah. and, and what you were being shown. And I, yeah, I did not want particularly to be hearing no. the other side of the story. So to yeah. that extent, maybe the film did the job that it, it intended really works. to do. I mean, the extent to which it's drawn out previous to that, do, yeah. and it, it, does, it does the job of building things up. I mean, you've got scenes, and I think this is at the director's, this is his mm. signature, isn't it? Scenes that go on too long. Everyone is finished yeah. and the camera doesn't cut away. But it's also rather like a, a horror film. I'm thinking sort of one of the Final Destination films where you're, you're watching for... Mm how it's going to lead to the catastrophe it's, that you know is yeah. coming. It's like Titanic, isn't it? Like Titanic, Titanic yeah. 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 Um, and, yeah, it's effective in that way. Perhaps it's it's slightly voyeuristic in that way as well mm. at points in terms of flagging up, I don't know, one particular character who in the very first scene has survived Waterloo mm. and is clearly very traumatised from that. And we, 
we know throughout the film that something terrible then is going to happen, that he might have survived the one mm. battle, but question marks as to whether he will survive another. And maybe that is manipulative to, a, to an extent that actually cuts against its, its political mm. progressive purpose as a film. I also think, well, I think the build-up is too long, and I don't think we get nearly enough about the aftermath of this. Um, there isn't even a kind of a text placard before the credits to say how many people are killed, mm. were killed at Peterloo, and what its repercussions were. And part of me wonders if that is a point of unease in left-wing discourse as a whole, actually, about to what extent we can really say Peterloo mm led to anything mm. very much. I mean, did it directly inspire later movements? Certainly there, there are figures in common as you move into the 19th century. Mm. But at the same time, a lot of right-wing commentary at the time that the film came out that was clearly invested in, in dismissing what Mike Lee was doing, was doing so by saying, well, he sees it as more significant than it really was. Ultimately, these these people, once economic conditions improved, they were not protesting in the same way in kind of the years ahead in the subsequent mm. decade. Can you draw a straight line? I mean, the people making that point are again grinding a particular political axe, aren't they? But the film leaves itself open mm. to that sort of accusation. It does. And I mean, the function of the film, much like the Poldark example, I think is, is all paratextual, epitextual, the, mm. the fact that in the month of the anniversary, we had every bus had for the many a few written on the side, or yes. there's a trailer that, which is a very effective one and a half mm. minute trailer about class injustice and, and the need mm. for revolution was being widely circulated. I mean, that was the kind of the yeah. you didn't. I imagine the majority of people didn't go and watch the three mm. hour film, but they saw that. But they saw the trailer, and the trailer yeah might well be just as just as powerful. Mm. Um, well, moving on then to the other pop cultural artefact that we're going to talk about in this episode. And it's, it must be said it's harder to come by representations of Peter Lou <laughs> in pop culture than it is um, kind of Crusoe afterlives, as we talked about last week. Um, but we did track down this interesting, less recent representation of Peter Lou to act as a counterpoint to Mike Lee's film. Um, Sharp's Justice is a, a 1997 two-hour instalment in the long-running Sharp TV series uh, based on the novels by... Bernard Cornwell, although this particular uh, film is not based on one of Cornwell's novels. As in the rest of the series, Sean Bean plays the titular Richard Sharp, a soldier who manages to witness or be involved in pretty much every major military event of the early 19th century. But Sharp's justice is a little different from most Sharp episodes for a few reasons. I mean, I've mentioned that it's not based on any of the Cornwell novels. It also takes place entirely in England, where Sharp is sent back to his native Yorkshire to protect the interests of local mill owners, and ends up overseeing, through no fault of his own, a fictionalised version of the Peterloo Massacre. Now, Adam, you're a big fan of Sharp, and I can't say that I'm nearly as familiar with it as you are. I mean, I've read a few of the novels, I've seen a few of these episodes, but I will need to count on you to correct me if I get any of the important facts wrong. I've also got a sense, just from looking online at some of the responses to Sharp's Justice, that it isn't a, a favourite episode for most Sharp fans. And I'm wondering why that's the case. I, mean, I think there's probably a, a really fandom-esque answer 
mm. which is probably the least interesting answer, which is that because it's not based on a novel. Sure. Um, and also, they take the writers of the show take a few liberties with the character's backstory. Mm. And so, for instance, one of the things that always makes me smile about Sharp is that when the Sharp's rifles came out, mm. he was a dark-haired man who had been born on the streets of London. Mm. Um, and then the first few, the first three novels were adapted with Sean Bean, Caster's Sharp, and then... By the time he gets to the fifth or sixth book in the series, he's got blonde hair. <laughs> and uh, although he was born in Wapping, he was raised in Yorkshire. So yeah. they could have a lot of retconning going on. Whereas in this film, they established that he was born yeah. in Yorkshire, somewhere near Skipton, mm. in a... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? A workhouse. Born mm. in a workhouse, somewhere near Skipton. So they establish yes. him as being born in Yorkshire. And there's the whole... There's a, I, I think it's a fantastic episode, but there's a whole con- framing of it as this is the one where Sharp goes home. And finds his long-lost brother, who he never knew about as well, yeah. doesn't he, along the way. Uh, yeah. I mean, I could see how details like that might rile yeah. the the sharp faithful. Anything. Although, yeah, it's yeah. part of any sort of run long, long-running it. novel series that goes alongside TV shows. I think Inspector Morse is somewhat the same. If you yeah. go back to the first novels and you don't really recognise yeah. the character that you have come to know. Um yeah, so he finds finds out who his mother is, which he never discovers, I don't think, in any of the novels. And he okay. finds out that he has this half-brother, um, it, which is all... So that's all happening. But then I think, far more interestingly, and one of the reasons why I really like this episode, and I suspect it's uncomfortable for some fans, mm. is that it really problematises Sharp's heroism and the England's role in the Napoleonic Wars and what England was yeah. fighting for, and, and it sort of asks why he fights for mm. England and... Um, and and also he doesn't have any answers. Yeah. But then he's constantly being charged in this film to say, why are you supporting a regime mm. which is um, trying to basically re-establish mm. absolutism in France? And he and he says, I think, well, I, yes, I fight for the king, but I also fight for myself and my family. I think that's maybe about the closest he gets to an and answer. He says, like, I fight for the man beside me, mm. and I'm good at it. But then yeah, he also wants to go back to France at the end, where his beloved is, and and sees that really as his spiritual home. That's I an interesting guess, moment, isn't it? Where he says, um, "There's nothing for me here. England is broken. It's mm. run by corrupt elites, and I'd rather live in a vineyard in France." I can certainly imagine that being uncomfortable for sharp fans if they are in it for kind of the jingoistic, mm. nationalistic side of what that series might be understood to, to yeah. be. I mean, I, I guess I was pleasantly surprised in watching Sharp's Justice, not just by the appearance of uh, Alexis Denisov, who goes <laughs> yeah. on to be Wesley in, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but pleasantly surprised actually by the sophistication, the nuance of, of the way they were dealing with this material. Actually, in, in contrast with, with what Mike Lee does, um, barring the one moment of a soldier kind of saying, should we be doing this yeah. in Peterloo, because here, like you say, it is front and centre, the, the situation of the soldier actually mm. being asked to police a gathering like this, having it go wrong. Do you think that it ends up kind of a more politically complicated, politically interesting work then than something like Peterloo? I think it is. I mean, it, it certainly ends up much more watching this. I mean, I saw this years and years ago watching it again it, mm. it's a lot more interested in the questions that it raises and it's a lot more i think a lot more nuanced than it's a lot more i'll go on record and say sharp's justice from 1997 is a lot more nuanced <laughs> than the film peter lee from, yeah um which is no you wouldn't expect yeah. it i guess the the flip side of that is that in order to preserve some of sharp's heroism by mm. the end of this film they 
they have what strikes me as a really strangely unlikely twist where yeah. one of the the bad mill owners is secretly responsible for all the protests and for sabotaging the equipment of the good mill yeah. owners, which kind of just magically brings all of the, the government's yeah. interests in line with those of these maligned protesters and yeah. Sharp is able to make everyone friends. That is, that was fortunate. I mean, I think one of the ways that the episode is successful is that it, I think it functions primarily as a character piece about Sharp. So mm. it, throughout the series, he, he is this working class, he doesn't know his family, is this working class runt who, but through an almost accidental act of heroism, gains some notori notoriety in the army and then is constantly confronted by situations where people from a higher class than him are making bad choices and he's having to sort it out and, and as I say he becomes a celebrity and then here he has to go back to working class Yorkshire be confronted with the people he's left behind to, mm. um, and uh, the, the first mill owner who he meets uh, Lord Willoughby is Willoughby, it? Willoughby yes yeah we'll talk about that name in just a second yeah. <laughs> he's a self-made man isn't he and he, and he, yes. he sort of he makes a comment about blue-blooded gentry at the start which mm -hmm makes Sharp raise an eyebrow and then says, well, I work myself, I'm like you, I can't raise it. So there's there's all of that. and But then... Um, he does end up being the villain, of course. He does end up the being the overarching villain. villain. But it complicates, it just complicates a lot of yeah. the assumptions in the series. And, yeah. and Sharp then has to think about what it is that he stands for in a way that he never has to yeah. um, elsewhere. So th there's all of that. But then also with having him as a soldier who's sent to captain the local yeomanry, who then mm. is sent to quell the... the the, the actual um, well what becomes the massacre and yes. um, it it does just show that there's different perspectives and different people yeah. involved doesn't it I mean if if that had happened in if Sharp had been a character in Mike Lee's film mm. there wouldn't have been any of the shame attached to presiding over this massacre that we yeah. have in in Sharp's Justice in Mike Lee's film he'd have been celebrated by yeah. the the national press hooray for sharp in yeah. quelling these these dissidents etc yeah um it does strike me as slightly strange i mean presumably it is it is owing to the needs of sharp's overarching narrative as a character but we are very specifically put back to 1814 in this fictionalized version of peterloo here mm. so it takes place actually before waterloo rather than in the wake of it as was so important for mike lee's film mm. and I don't know, maybe that doesn't have as much of an effect as as it might, but having come up, come to this right after seeing Mike Lee's yeah. film, it did strike me as strange considering how important Waterloo was seen to be in explaining the frustration of the people, the sense that mm. after such a glorious victory, they should be able to feed their families, etc. So I, I don't know. Well, they, they, strange, they act as though it's after Waterloo, don't they? All the characters act. So that, like the Willoughby's speech in the mill where he says, you know, mm. we thought there'd be great profits after the war had finished and we were making loads of cotton for all the soldiers, but the fighting's finished now, so we need to make savings somewhere. So he's mm. saying all of that. And then you've got who, the man who transpires to be Sharp's brother, Truman, mm. making these speeches about why all the soldiers are coming back now and they're going to take our jobs. And So yes. it's, it's, it's mm. exactly like... Waterloo's mm. happened, but it hasn't. But it hasn't, so that, yeah. But the, the peculiar moment for me is that Sharp ends up bonding with his brother and realising that he's not on the right side. Yes. And when his brother explains to him, you know, we're, we are the few, not the many, and <laughs> there's not much, we've not got much of a chance, but we need to fight for what's right. Sharp, mm. Sharp says to me, like, well, that's the kind of odds I like. Yeah. And then in the next episode, he's, he's back off in Waterloo. Waterloo. Yeah. yeah, so um, did, it, did it all amount to nothing, perhaps? Yes. Yeah. There's one other point that I, I need to mention, otherwise kind of I'd lose my English literature credentials <laughs> here. 
um, which I don't know how much we want to make of it, but it is kind of bizarre that the two villains here, the main bad guys, yeah. are Lord Willoughby and a George Wickham, yeah. who is sort of his henchman. These two Jane Austen and names drafted in. He's the absolute villain, isn't he? He's he a, is. He's, he's a terrible. Utter, utter terrible. And man. he's the one I think would be most at home in Mike Lee's film. He talks about the scum a he lot, does. as as with some of those characters in Mike Lee's film. Yeah, that um, was fun. Should we read anything into Austen know. names cropping up? I, I wondered if when 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 was the famous? Was it ninety five? So this is two years after the famous ITV Pride and Prejudice. So, so is it, it kind of. Sort of on Austin's coattails there, so maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe. I don't know. <laughs> There's loads of fun things I enjoyed. Like, I don't know, if, is there such a thing as the Scarsdale Yeomanry? I, I imagine them, I don't I know. Need to double check. I don't know. And also, Yorkshire was it full of cotton mills? I mean, there's a bit where um, one character says, Someone says, I thought all the mills were in Lancashire. <laughs> and then he says, yes, but Lancashire and Yorkshire are concurrent. Or something like that. And, uh, <laughs> contiguous. Think, contiguous, that was the word, yeah. Um, contiguous. Yeah, slightly awkward moment. I can't say that I'm an expert on, on exactly where the mills would have been. Um, I'd be interested if anyone can tell us, but I don't think Skipton is full of cotton mills. Well, we will put it out there and, <laughs> and maybe some of our listeners will be able to respond. I've really enjoyed and found it very valuable talking through these different versions of Peterloo with you, Adam, and, and putting them in that broader context of contemporary politics and exactly what they mean for us. And yeah, if there's mm. one thing that I've learned, it's that kind of 1990s TV drama might have just as much to say, or at mm. least as many conversations to provoke as more recent, more kind of on the face of it, um, important films like Mike Lee's. Uh, thank you again for joining me. Uh, we will have more episodes from season two of Pop Enlightenment coming a little down the line. But for now, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>